You're listening to audio from Journey Bible Church. Join us every week for sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you like to listen most. If you would like to connect with us, head to journeybible.org connect. Um, if you have your Bibles, if, if you closed them, go ahead and reopen them to Luke 15. We're going to kind of camp out there in that third parable this morning. And it, it, last week, we, we, just, we started in Luke 15 with the first two parables, and we'll finish with the third parable this morning. And, and in this chapter, um, Jesus is letting us know what the Father's heart, God the Father's heart is like, which is what his heart is like, towards people um, who are lost, who are trapped, um, people who have rebelled, um, people who are burdened, people who are hurting, people who have wandered, people who are broken, people who are far from God. And what we see in this chapter, um, in all three of the parables, is, is kind of a rhythm that explains uh, God's heart uh, for people. And, uh, and so these um, three parables uh, are all about God's heart for the one. That phrase, for the one, the one who is lost, is repeated throughout, whether it was in the first parable with the lost sheep or the second parable with the lost coin or in the third parable with the two lost sons. How many of you noticed that in your Bible, the title of that um, parable is the prodigal son? How many of you have that in, in your Bibles? That's wrong. So just so you'll know, titles and things like that that are in your Bible aren't inspired by God. They're man-made in, to put in to give you subjects. And what we're going to find out this morning is it's really the parable of the father's heart towards two lost sons. And you'll see that as we unpack that this morning. But to set that up, if you go to verses 1 and 2 in Luke 15, just to remember, he tells these three parables to a group of people. And he says, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near, drawing near to hear him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So there's the first group of people are the tax collectors and the sinners. Tax collectors were people that were hired by the hated Roman government, and they were people that were a part of the captured um, area, and they were hired to collect the fees and taxes for the government. And as one of their privileges, they could extort any additional amount they wanted to. Think about you got a bank fee of $3, and your teller takes 9 okay? Um, uh, for the bank fee. That, that would be that kind of a mentality here. And so they, they were hated because they were betraying their countrymen. The word sinners was used by the Pharisees and scribes to describe people that were far from God, people that were irreligious, people that were hopeless, people that should be ostracized, uh, people that should be disregarded, people that were immoral. And, and notice that this group of people were the ones who were drawing near to hear what Jesus had to say. They were intrigued by Jesus. They, they were intrigued by the reality that, that, that he was welcoming them, that he was addressing the issues that had created the barrenness in their own souls, and, and that he wasn't seeing them as too far gone um, to be hopeless. And so they, they see how he's living. They see how he's uh, acting and what he's teaching, and they're drawn to him. 
They, they may feel exposed, but they're intrigued. And they're hoping that he has some of the answers they're looking for. So that's the first group of people. The second group of people are the Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, these are the conservative, Bible-believing, uh, temple-going people uh, of, the, of the first century. The Pharisees are, are the especially uh, ones in power that are ruling, and uh, they're very conservative. And the scribes are a subset that focus on helping people to keep the law and teach the law. So they came up with all of the Jewish traditions that would help you not break any of the commandments. And so they had become a group of people whose hearts were very cold and they were very rules-oriented, very regulation-oriented, very do-and-don't-oriented. And notice how they feel about Jesus is they're grumbling. They're complaining. They're like, who is this guy? He doesn't keep the traditions. He, he doesn't follow what we've told people. He has a different heart towards sinners. He has a different heart towards tax collectors. As a matter of fact, this man, which is strongly contemptuous, receives sinners. He welcomes sinners. He travels with sinners. He even eats with them, which in a Middle Eastern culture is one of the most um, welcoming and hospitable things that someone could do. So Jesus is engaging with those that are ostracized, that are outcasts uh, by the religious elite, those that are farthest from God. And, uh, and so it's really interesting. The, the ones that, that should be staying away from Jesus, the tax collectors and sinners, are drawing near. And the ones who should have recognized him as the Messiah are grumbling and complaining and pushing him away. Now, there's a third group of people. We don't read it in the text, but we know from chapter 14 and chapter 16, it's the disciples. And they're observing and watching and listening to everything that's happening. And they're taking it in. And, and I think the idea behind that is that Jesus wants them to know his heart and the Father's heart towards the one, the one who is lost. And he, he wants them to know what God's true heart is towards them and how he longs for people to be found, for the dead to come alive, for those in bondage to find freedom and forgiveness, um, to know that the Father stands ready to receive home all people at all times. And what we saw last week was this heart of Jesus, this theme uh, runs through all three of these parables. One, there's a relentless pr pursuit. There's a searching. There's a waiting. There's a longing. Then there's extravagant love. There, there's this, uh, it, it leads this pursuit, leads them to pour out love. So the lost then can turn to the Father. The, the sinner can repent is the word that's used in the first two. And then all of heaven abounds in joy. So this idea of relentless pursuit, extravagant love, turning to the Father and, and people abounding in joy. All three of these parables keep these themes. And so today in the third parable, it really should be titled The Loving Father and the Two Lost Sons. I think that would be the best title. If you want to scratch it out in your Bible and write that in there. Um, no difference from an editor sticking it in there and you putting it in there. But I, I think you're going to see this morning that captures really what is going on the best. And so we want to walk through this passage. You just heard it read. I just want to highlight some of the things in here and unpack some of the, the traditions of society and culture that open up 
um, the, the way that we might see this parable more forcefully in our own lives. First, he said, there was a man who had two sons. So we know there's a father and two sons. And it starts out that way to set for us kind of the tone here. And uh, that uh, we, we are anticipating, now we'll discover what is the father like and what are the two sons like. And we start with the younger son who is lost. And it becomes painfully aware to all of us how lost he really is. Um, it, it, as we read through the parable, because uh, many of us associate a, a lost individual with someone who's wandered away into a way of living that uh, is not helpful, is not right, is not moral, is not good. And he said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. In other words, he comes to his father, and um, he's probably not married because there's nothing mentioned uh, about a family here, and, and he wants his share of the estate. Now, his father is still alive, so this is an unusual request. Um, typically, until a father became incapacitated and the estate would be divided uh, between the sons, um, the father would remain in control uh, of the estate, uh, building wealth for his sons. And when he passed it on, the oldest son would get two-thirds of the estate, and then the other sons would get a third of the estate. And that, that was just the way that the culture did it. And so in this case, this younger son is going to get a whole third of the estate. And it's kind of like him walking in and saying, hey, hey, dad, um, no offense, but really uh, living in this house is just a bunch of junk. I really don't appreciate you, and I, I'd like to have my inheritance now. I kind of wish you were dead, and I'd gotten it a little bit earlier. It's about the most disrespectful and outlandish thing that, that you could have done. It's like you're, you're basically doing everything you can to disregard and disrespect your father. And notice what the father does. He divides his property between them. He has to do that. He has to break up the family farm, the family business, and distribute it between the older son and the younger son <coughs> to give the younger son his wish. And I want you to notice something that's very hard here is the reality that the father is willing to let the son follow through on his sinful, disrespectful way of living and give him the space to really destroy his own life. So he distributes the property. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And so just to set that, the, the idea of taking the property, um, he probably turned it into, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't see him because property back then was fields. It, it was crops. It, it was cattle. It was goats. It was sheep. Um, it, it was uh, things that were of tangible hard assets is what we would call it today, as well as some silver and some gold and other things like that. But it seems like to take this long journey, he's going to turn it into cash. And there, when he got there, a far country. So I want you to think, it's kind of like, man, I can't wait to get as far away from my family as I can get. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. He wasted it. He used it in self-seeking and pleasure. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. 
and he began to be in need. So he thinks, I'm getting the high life. I'm going to go find all the pleasure. I'm just going to enjoy myself. I'm not going to withhold anything I want. And we're going to find later reckless living included sexual immorality at the highest level where he's paying for prostitutes. And and he's just, I'm just going to go live the high life. I'm going to indulge myself in everything I want. And he runs out of money. He spends it all. He wastes it all. He squanders it all. And then it says that he began to be in need. He had, he had no way to care for himself, no way to provide for himself. And, you know, it was like the downturn in 2008 like, or, or a financial crisis. A famine created a huge economic uh, fam, uh, crisis, not just a hunger, but everything because uh, most, uh, you know, without crops, you, you don't have healthy livestock. And without livestock, you, just, you go through the list. It, it was a massive problem. That's why often when you read the Old Testament, you will find when there's a famine, people flee to a place where they can find food. Verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. You know, it's hard for us um, in a Jewish culture um, touching or being around unclean animals was something that was prohibited. And you had to go through a long cleanliness process to be restored to being clean if you were in contact um, with unclean animals. And so his livelihood, his life was in a pig pen. That's where we get that phrase, pig pen. It's the idea of wallowing in the mud with a bunch of unclean animals being completely unkempt and all the time being dirty. And, and, And what his job is, is the lowest of the lowest things that anybody from a Jewish background could ever do, hang out with the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods, the pig slop that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So not only has he wasted his fortune, not only is he in the middle of an economic crisis, a famine in the country, not only does he have the worst possible menial job society could provide, he's all alone. He's got nobody who wants to help him. Not a single one of his friends that was willing to waste his wealth is willing to offer him anything, no food whatsoever. When he came to himself, when he came to his senses, when the light went off that the pursuit he had been on had only made his soul more barren, made his life more empty and more lonely, only when he saw the reality of where he really was did he say, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I'm more desperate than I've ever been. I left a place where even the people that were on the lowest part of our family household were were ones that were well taken care of. I will arise and go to my father. Now, man, that statement, you could unpack that. Can you imagine how he's thinking, what his reception might be? So he, des- he decides what he'll say to his father. I've sinned against you. 
against heaven and before you. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And I, I would imagine the, the way this is written and the fact that he'd been on a long journey, he's got a long journey to go on to get home. He's probably practicing his speech to make sure he can get through it. And verse 20 says, he arose and came to his father. So if we had to summarize the, the younger son, what we would say is he went and left the house full of self-seeking, full of pleasure-seeking, full of stubbornness, rebellion, rebelliousness, and selfishness. And, and what he finds is, is not what he's looking for, satisfaction and fulfillment. What he finds is regret. regret. He finds loneliness and emptiness. But he does something that's wise, he turns to his father. Now, it says in that verse, right, he arose and came to his father. So naturally, if you and I are listening, we're, we're wondering, hey, what is the father going to do? Like if Jesus, I can just see Jesus, he's giving this parable and he pauses right here, just like I'm doing. Now, unfortunately, you all heard the rest of the story, but you're probably wondering, what will the what will the father do? Will he send his son packing once he gets home? Will he punish him and shame him in front of the family and community? Will he let him become a hired servant, but then spend years extracting just a little bit of a revenge every day, just letting him know over and over and over and over how much pain he caused? Will he keep him at arm's length? Will he remain cold and harsh and spiteful. So we're wondering, like, what will the father do with a son who's been as disrespectful as any member of a household could ever be? And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You know, you read that, and, and the picture that is happening here is the father um, sees the son while he's still a long way off. Now, that means that the father was walking the edge of the field looking on the horizon, maybe even praying for his sons. And he felt compassion. The first thing that happens in his heart when he sees his son is compassion. And he's so relieved that he's come home and then notice what it says. Out of that compassion, he ran. Now, so think of an old guy who, who has bad knees and bad hips. And, and he's clothed in this big old robe. And he, he, he has to grab that robe and hike it up so that he can you know, run bow-legged to his son. And he runs. Now, this is the most undignified, unimaginable thing a patriarch of a family would ever do. He wouldn't do this. You just don't do that. And then he embraces him. A public show of affection, uh, way more than kissing, so to speak. It, it literally, to embrace means like to fall on his neck. So it, imagine the biggest, most amazing bear hug, lifting that son off the ground and both of them falling down. And he, he smothers him with affection and kisses him. 
Now, I'm sure that the son wasn't exactly sure how to respond to what the father was doing. And he's come with a lot of regret, a lot of remorse. Um, he has recognized. Notice what he says. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. He acknowledges what I did was wrong. It was a sin against God. It, it, it was a breaking of his commandments. It, it, it was me rebelling against God first, and I've sinned before you. And he, he's starting his speech. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's going to go into a request to be hired on to the family uh, farm, the family business, now his brother's business, as a worker. But the father interrupts him says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Now, the best robe would have been the father's very best robe. It would be the robe that he would wear when he was meeting with the elders of the town in a special meeting. It would have been the robe that he would have worn when he was entertaining dignitaries. It's the father's robe. He has been enshrouded in the father's best robe. And put a ring on his hand. A ring, uh, a family member, a son, an heir would ring, wear a ring that had a signet on it um, of the family. And it would be used uh, to validate purchases and transactions. He probably had one of these rings. He probably sold it for the, the gold that it was made of. Or he left it at home out of spite from his father. And he's saying, give him back his ring that signifies he's one of my sons. And put shoes on his feet. See, most people walked barefoot. Most people that were servants um, had no sandals. Only those that were of the household of the family had shoes. The best robe, the family ring, and shoes for his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat. Let's have a party. Let's celebrate. My son, he was dead. We had no idea if he was alive. We had no idea what his life was like. We figured he was wasting it. Now he's here. He's come back. He recognizes where he was. He's alive. He was lost. He was on a desperate search for satisfaction and meaning and never found it. And he was lonely and he was hurting and he came to the one place where he could find love. He's found. And they began to partay, to celebrate, like music and dancing and food and just everything you can imagine as one of the greatest celebrations ever. And what we find in this is that the father, his heart is full of love. It's full of compassion. It's full of joy. The father runs out to meet his son, to forgive his son. The father doesn't seek to extract vengeance or punish. He's willing to take all of it upon himself and restore to him everything the son really wanted. He just didn't know that he wanted it. So now we know the younger son, what he did. We know what the father has done, but we know there's another son. And we know that when Jesus introduced us, he said there were two sons. 
And we haven't heard from the second son yet. We don't know anything about him. So that's the next question is, what can we find out about the older son since we've already been introduced to the younger son? Now, his older son was in the field. He'd been working all day. Again, he was the one taking care of his father, taking care of the family business. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Like, you know, music and dancing and parties were not a regular routine. They, they were a very special occasion. They were very regularly, probably, or not regularly, irregular. And they probably never happened spontaneously. And so he calls, verse 26, one of the servants and asks what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come. I mean, can you imagine what's going through the, the older brother's mind right now? Wait, wait, wait. The one who shamed my dad, the one who broke up the family business, the one who went away and the stories we heard that he squandered his whole life, he squandered all of his wealth, that guy has come home? Yeah, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. And you can just imagine the, the blood that's boiling in the older brother's heart and soul. So it says he was angry and refused to go into the party. Now you, you have to kind of probably read between the lines a little bit here that, that that servant or others, when the dad says, hey, have you seen the older son? Is he back from work yet? I know he always works hard. Is he here yet? I want him to celebrate with us. Yeah, he's here. Where is he? Show me. He's outside. His father came out and entreated him. So this is why we can say they're both lost. Because both of them have to have the father come to them. And notice that here, the, the son is refusing to go in and to celebrate. And the father's willing to go out. He's so full of love. He is so full of compassion that this stubborn, angry, resentful son, he will go outside and entreat with him to come in and enjoy what the father has provided. But that son answered his father, look, these many years, I've served you. I've been the good one. I've been the one staying home. I've been the one taking care of you. I've never, not once, never disobeyed your command. Yet, you never gave me a young goat. Never, not once, that I might celebrate with my friends. Then, this son of yours, not my brother anymore, your son, he comes home. He's devoured your property with prostitutes and you kill the fattened calf and start a party. Can you feel it? The bitterness and the resentment. Now, at this point, all of the Pharisees know, all of uh, the scribes know he's talking about them. They stayed home in the temple. They pretended like everything they knew everything. And they're just as lost in close proximity to their father as, as the sinners and the tax collectors are living a wild, reckless life uh, in a far country. They're both lost. 
just in different ways. The older lost son has a heart that's full of resentment and what he reaps is anger. And he refuses to come to his father, to come into the celebration, to have his father's heart towards his brother. He's dying on the inside in the same way his younger brother was. Same but different. And the older son stands in rigid defiance of the heart of his father. And the father said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Everything I have is yours. I've given you everything that you have. And it was fitting. It was proper. It was right to celebrate and be glad. For your brother, he was dead. He was trapped. He was in bondage and he came to his senses and he's alive. He's forgiven. He is free. He was lost and he is found. And this is the heart of the Father. He's full of love and compassion. And just like he did with the younger son, he comes out and invites his son to be a part of things. So this is the twist in the story. That the Pharisees and the scribes who should have recognized the Messiah miss him because of the hardness of their heart and the, the bitterness of rules and regulation and legalism. And the guys and the gals, the sinners and the tax collectors that are far away living a, a reckless life are the ones who are actually intrigued and in coming to Jesus. But either way, the Father is the same. He's full of love. He's full of compassion. He's full of joy. He's wanting everyone who's far off, who is lost, who is dead, who is broken, who is trapped. He wants all of them to come and experience his love and his forgiveness and his joy. And so we might say, like we did last week, there's a fourth audience and it's you. You've just now heard this parable. And you may not be a tax collector or a sinner. You, you may fall into that camp. You may not be a Pharisee or a scribe or you may fall into that camp. You, you may not be one of the disciples um, who are trying to learn the heart of the Father but, but you and I now have heard this, and we're responsible for it. And, and Jesus was teaching them, hoping they would get, catch on, that each of them would respond to what he's trying to say. And we, too, need to respond. You and I need to respond to this parable, and we need to embrace God's heart for the one. So I came up with just four applications. In the seat backs in front of you, you'll notice there's a card that looks like this. And on the back are some blank lines. And what I want to encourage you to do is grab that card. And I'm going to go through these four applications. And there may be a fifth that the Holy Spirit speaks to you. Great, write it down. But I want you to think through what it is that God is calling you to do now that you've heard this. How will you respond to what Jesus taught about the one? What changes will you make in your heart and in your life so that you can live out the Father's heart? 
So the first suggestion I have is to seek God's heart for the one. I, I, in other words, you know, as you read through these parables, you know, maybe, maybe you're sitting out there and you go, Mike, you know, I'm worn out from life. My heart is kind of hard. It's kind of cold. It's kind of harsh. I just, I've been through too much. I just, I really, I just don't have a heart for people. And so the starting point for you is just to ask Jesus to give you his heart. Go to the Bible, and as you're reading, say, God, I want to be like you. I, I want to be like Jesus on the cross when people are crucifying him and mocking him and scorning him and persecuting him. He's praying for them. God, I can't even imagine that. Would you give me the heart to pray for those that don't know what they are doing? Second, maybe you need to pursue some relationships with the one. Many of us, we, we live in a Christian subculture. We surrounded ourselves with all of these people that, that are Christians like us. And we go to small group and we go to Bible study and we go to worship service. And we serve alongside of them. And yet our lives are also overlapping with all of these people that are, that are older brothers and, and younger brothers and who are lost and, and, and are looking for truth and um, people who are uh, trapped and, and looking for freedom, people who are broken and looking for healing. And, and so maybe, maybe you and I need to find a way to start engaging those people meaning, meaningfully. So like maybe you go hunting with some Christian friends from your group, your small group. Invite some of the neighbors along. Invite some of the dads from your sports groups along. Um, maybe you play in a racquetball league or, or, or don't play in a racquetball league. You just play with another Christian friend. Join a league and meet some other people and build some genuine relationships with the people who are far from God. Make it an intentional desire to connect with them to eat meals with them, to talk with them, to learn their story so you can begin to know how to, number three, pray personally for your one. All of us have some ones in our life. People that are lost that need to be found. People who are broken that need healing. People that are trapped in guilt and shame and need forgiveness. And only through the gospel and Jesus can that happen. But you and I need to commit to praying for them by name. Maybe you need to write down some of those names on here. Uh, Natalie said in our app under sermon notes, you can actually write out a prayer for one of your ones um, alongside the sermon notes. Uh, you don't have to put their full name in there. You can just put their initials in there. I'm, Lord, I want to pray for JB, and I, I want to pray and pray for the circumstances of their life that they would come into contact with the true meaning they were designed for, a relationship with God. And then fourth, we're going to hold a conference, uh, just an evening conference for three hours on Sunday, March 3rd. It's a For the One conference. And at that conference, we want to inspire you with scripture and stories about how meaningful your interaction with the one can be. And then we want to equip you with practical, relevant ways that you can welcome and show hospitality to those who are your neighbors, those who may not yet know Jesus and how you can engage them um, with a, a pattern of living that will, will welcome them into your life, and then how you can introduce spiritual conversations so that you can dialogue with them about the most significant thing in the world, uh, what's missing in their lives, uh, a relationship with God.
So we see in this passage, in Luke 15, in all three of these parables, we see the Father's heart, Jesus' heart for those that are lost, those that are living in rebellion, those that are far away, those are nearby and living independent and angry at God. And God's heart remains the same for all people, relentlessly pursuing, extravagantly loving, endlessly compassionate, constantly coming out to meet them and welcome them and call them home, call them to turn to him for forgiveness and hope and life. And this should be the heart of the church and the heart of the people that gather here on Sunday mornings. Let's pray together. God, we know that um, at times it's easy for us to have a hard heart, a callous heart, a worn out heart. So we just ask that you would breathe fresh, uh, fresh wind into our souls to have um, the kind of attitude that you had that would be standing on the edge of a field looking to the horizon hoping for someone to come home. God, give us the longing to pray for the ones in our lives that are lost, that are unsatisfied, that are empty, that are broken. God, give us the equipping we need so that as we enter into and engage with those that are lost and we show them love, that we will have ways to turn the conversation to the spiritual things that matter. Give us the strength and the desire to introduce to them the love of Jesus. God, thank you that your heart is for the one. No matter where they are with you, your heart is always full of compassion and love. Endless compassion, extravagant love, and you're relentlessly pursuing them. Father, we pray that you would remind us you're at a moment's notice ready to welcome home any who will turn to you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. Thanks for listening.